As I mentioned, uh, 73, church started, 76, I started, and in 89 I went over to Cannon Beach and uh, came back from that experience over there for four days, uh, a different person committed, devoted to prayer, to Bible reading, to praying for you. And as I pursued that sort of new life, I discovered that I was kind of up and down. Uh, Often I would forget uh, the things I had committed to do. I would not pray uh, for you. I would forget to read my Bible. And so I developed this little morning thing, and I've given it to you uh, regularly, often. I thought I might do it again for you this morning. Uh, I pray it every morning uh, without fail, and it's a commitment Uh, that I make to God, and I believe that His power flows to commitment. Uh, And the more I make the commitment, the more I move in the direction of what those commitments are. And so this morning when I woke up, I I said, Lord, I give my life to you today. I declare you to be Lord, Master King of my life. Today I will obey you, I'll follow you, I'll do whatever you want me to do, no matter how difficult or how hard it might be. Today I will love my wife the way Christ loves the church. Today I will be the kind of father and grandfather to my children that you are to me. Today I will do my part to build your church here at JBC and around the world. Today I will read your word. Today I will be devoted to prayer. Today I will take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Today I will speak only words that edify and build up. Today I will love any person you sovereignly bring into my life, no matter how difficult or how hard they might be to live. I will live today as if it's my last before I stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ and I'm recompensed, rewarded for the deeds I've done in the body, whether good or bad. I can't do these things. I can't keep these commitments in my own strength. Would you fill me with your spirit and grant me your power uh, to keep these commitments today? Would you grant me your wisdom to know what to do and say in any and every situation that you bring into my life today? I love you. Uh, So every morning I pray that. So I thought maybe we could do that. You're asking me regularly if I would give you a copy of it. So here's a real short version of it. And we can do it together one line at a time if you like. Uh, You don't have to. If you want to do it out loud, loud you can. If you want to do it real soft, you can do that. If you want to do it just in your mind and your heart. Or if you just want to uh, go to sleep in this next part, you can do that as well. So let's do it at a line at a time. First line, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Next one. I present myself to you as a holy and living sacrifice. Next one. I'm committed to doing your will, no matter how difficult or how hard it might be. The next one. Please give me your strength to serve you well. And then this one. I'm looking forward to heaven very much. Now you could take those um, and make that your morning prayer. You could add to it. Uh, You can expand it. But it really does make a huge difference to begin a day by saying, I will, and then asking for his strength to actually keep them. So we're on a series in the Gospel of John. We're going to come back to that in the sermon. Uh, And so we're at John chapter 6 this morning, the feeding of the 5,000. And um, you remember there's seven miracles in the Gospel of John, only seven. And so of all the thousands that Jesus did, he handpicks the ones that he wants to use to communicate truth, and uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is the fourth one uh, that he's gotten to so far. And of the miracles that John writes about, this is the only one that's included in all the other Gospels. Uh, his book tends to be fairly unique in that he talks about, teaches things that the others don't mention, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but this particular miracle, all four of them include, uh, and so it's a, it's a biggie. Uh, so let's begin. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. 
He went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, <clears throat> I've been into Israel three times over uh, the last uh, 20 years. The first one was a gift from you, the church, to Patty and I when we had been here at the church for 20 years. Uh, we're getting close to 40 years, so that was quite a few years ago when we went. And it wasn't a tour. We just were given, uh, I think, $2,000. And uh, we went over, rented a car, bought a, 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 a ticket that got us into all the places in Israel, all the archaeological digs, every place that they had there we could get in with this one ticket. We stayed at cheap places, uh, uh, kibbutzes and various places. And we did our own thing, our own tour. Uh, went wherever we wanted, whenever we wanted to do it. And uh, we, I remember we used to, like when we would go to a place and there was a tour, there was a number of them, I would listen and hear one that was in English where the tour guide was speaking in English and we'd sort of slip over and become part of that tour uh, unofficially and listen to the lecture that was there and then we would go to another place and I would listen and see if there was one happening and, and we'd slip over into that one and we'd get the info on the thing. But I remember when we drove to the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and all the mountains around it are about 2,000 feet above sea level. And so when you drive in there, you kind of drive up a little bit, and then you come up over the rise and you see the Sea of Galilee, and it's not like the Atlantic Ocean. It's eight miles across at the widest point, 13 miles from top to bottom. And so when you drive up over the top of the hill and you look at it, you can see the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's a big lake, but it's, it's not an a, a ocean. And so it was beautiful when you could see it, but I was amazed at that. Because when you read all the stories in the Bible, you think it's huge. Well, it's eight miles across. Most of the places on this edge, you can see across to the other side because of the mountains all around it. And so on the side that Jesus was on, um, uh, Galilee, uh, lots and lots of people. On the other side, there was hardly any people. And so it says, after these things, and so the parallel passage in Matthew 14 it says, now when Jesus heard about John, uh, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. They were very close. They were friends. And John the Baptist, you remember, is, his head is cut off. He's killed by Herod. And so when Jesus heard about this, and I'm sure if your cousin, a family member, a good friend, uh, you saw on the news that they were over there in the Middle East and captured, uh, and their head was cut off, you would feel this great grief and remorse. And so Jesus heard about John. He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself with his disciples. And then in Mark 6.31, uh, another parallel uh, part of the same story, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. And so Jesus was healing everybody. His disciples were healing people and everybody was gathered all around them and they, they couldn't sit down. People were walking on their feet and they couldn't eat. And Jesus hears about John getting beheaded and he said, let's head to the other side and have a rest. Uh, just get away from things for a little bit. And so that's what they do. That's the beginning of the story. And then moving on to verse 2, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so they get in a boat and head across the lake eight miles to the other side to a secluded place to rest and get away from it all. And all the crowd walks around the bottom of the lake all the way around to the other side. 
And uh, as the story goes, there's 5,000 men, but the men have their wives. And you know how it is that if uh, men go, women go, and if men and women get together, there's kids. And uh, they estimate there were about 25,000 people in this crowd that, that walked around the bottom of the Sea of Galilee and met them on the other side. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming, 25,000 people. So just think for a minute. Hey, let's go to the other side. Let's have a rest. John's been murdered, and we haven't sat down and ate for days. Let's just, just the, us, small group, just go to the other side and rest for a bit. They get over there to be by themselves, and 25,000 people show up. You know what I'd say? You've got to be kidding me. Give me a break. Uh, we need a break. Get out of here. Um, and so Matthew 14, 14, parallel passage again. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and Jesus, he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And then the parallel passage in Mark, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So Jesus sees 25,000 people wanting to go over and be by himself, and his response was compassion, and he healed them even more, and he taught them. And, uh, but what about the disciples that went with him? Now, if you read the, the four accounts, you'll see that they sort of did what I would have done. You've got to be kidding me. And so they left Jesus and they went off and took a nap and did what they were planning on doing in the first place. And so Jesus is ministering all day to the crowd and the disciples are taking a break and taking a nap. And, and so Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now, one of the things about Jesus' ministry is that he wasn't just into he, uh, healing people and feeding people and doing miracles. He knew he was going to be gone in a, a few years, and then they were going to be left to take over. And so he was always teaching, always training uh, the Twelve. One of the things that prompted me to start the leadership class years ago was the reading uh, that I did of a book entitled The Training of the Twelve, in which the emphasis is what, was on you have to train and teach people to do ministry and so Jesus was doing that. He, so he says to Philip, hey, 25,000 people, they walked all the way around there, and what are we going to feed them with? And what would you say? And um, Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. It's sort of like, yeah, right. We're not going to be able to feed these people. You've got to be kidding me. For everyone to receive a little. One of the disciples, Andrew Simons Peter, uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, that was sort of a sarcastic statement. Hey, I hunted around. We got five loaves and two fish here, 25,000 people. Um, what is that to these, all these people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, if you walk by my office uh, and uh, walk into my office... I'll do usually one of two things. One of them is, is I'll stand up and I'll walk around the desk, stick my hand out, say, hey, good to see you. 
Now, what I'm doing is sending a message. Uh, I'm standing up. That means we got a few minutes. Just a few. And if you don't get the message, then what I do is I start walking towards my door. Uh, and then I, I assume you're going to follow me out the door. And once we get out there, I'll say, hey, it was good chatting with you. <laughs> See you again. That, and that's one of the things I do if I've got a schedule to keep and don't really want this to turn into a long conversation. I, you know, I try not to be real rude about it, but... The other thing I do is, uh, if you walk in, I, I look over my desk to see if there's a chair in front of my desk. There usually is. And if there is, I say, hey, have a seat. And what that means is, let's have a talk. Stick around. I'm in no rush. Let's have a little fellowship. If I look over the desk and there isn't a chair, I get up and I get one and I slide it up there and I say, hey, have a seat. And I go back and sit down and put my feet on the desk. It's a message. And so Jesus, disciple, didn't want to hear this. Have the people sit down. It's like, no. Let's just tell them to go away. Have them sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, someone said to me one time, why do we say grace at meals? I said, well, because Jesus did. Works for me. And so he gave thanks. He distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish as much as they wanted. The week after the seminar, Patty and I went over to the coast, Lincoln City, for a couple of days and, and planned it on the way home on Friday that we went by Spirit Mountain eh, about 1 o'clock, the casino, and um, didn't gamble, but we did eat quite a bit. And, uh, I mean, they have a place with food that's like as big as it is in here. And food everywhere, all kinds of food. And you can eat as much as you want. And so my goal is to eat until I can't get it in with a stick. Uh, so uh, they ate as much as they wanted. It wasn't sort of a, okay, you can have this little uh, communion-sized wafer. As much as they wanted. Now, Jesus creates this. Uh, it's like he, he makes it out of nothing. All this food that feeds 25,000 people, fish and loaves. We were having dinner at the banquet on the pastor's uh, seminar, and uh, the people I was sitting at the table with says, this is like the best rolls I've ever eaten in my life. Where do you get this? I said, oh, one of the ladies in the church, she cooks them. They're good, aren't they? Oh, wow, this is the best. And my response was the second best. Second best? Yeah, my mother makes the best. So we could, what's the best bread you've ever eaten? Your mother, Jenny Freetag, I mean, uh, Red Lobster in Salem, they have good bread there too. What's the best bread you've ever eaten in your life? Now, if you were there at the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus made the bread, I mean, it's going to be the best. There isn't going to be anything any better than the stuff that he made. Jesus made it. He created it out of nothing. Uh, and I mean, it's the best. And the same thing with the fish. The best fish I've ever eaten is sockeye salmon caught in Alaska that I caught in Alaska. Uh, that my wife cooks. I mean, oh, it's the best. I'm raising tilapia now. I, I kind of assume that once I start harvesting my tilapia and I fillet them and Patty cooks them, that they're going to be the best. But here, Jesus takes and multiplies and creates, creates fish out of nothing. And they eat and they're full. They're clear full. I mean, they eat and eat and eat until they can't hold any much. As much as they wanted, when they were filled, when they were filled clear to the top, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. I wonder why there were 12 baskets. Jesus is training and teaching the disciples. And he says, feed them. Yeah, right. And then when it's all said and done, everybody's eaten until they're full. There's 12 baskets left. Now there's a number of Greek words uh, in the New Testament for the word basket. The particular word that's used here is the Greek word coffer. Uh, and it's where we get the word coffin and other words. And it's the word for the biggest basket possible. It's a big old thing. There were 12 of them with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come <clears throat> and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone and uh, sent the people off. So interesting last statement, Jesus perceiving that this crowd of people were going to come and make him king, uh, he bailed. And so I thought that's what he wanted. So why is it that he didn't let them make him king? Because he understood something. What they were wanting is the ultimate welfare state. They were basically thinking, okay, Jesus is king, I won't have to work again the rest of my life. I mean, wouldn't it be cool to eat bread like this every day? Uh, and, I mean, I'm sure he'd drive the Romans out too. This wasn't an issue of following him, obeying him, listening to his teaching. It was simply an issue of a comfortable life. And Jesus wouldn't have anything uh, to do with that. And so he bailed on the situation. So if you have your notes in your bulletin, let's fill in some blanks, from some lessons from this passage. <clears throat> Number one, Jesus did many miracles to prove to people that he was the Son of God, the promised Messiah. He healed people, thousands and thousands of people. There wasn't a sick person in all the area because he healed anybody and everybody of anything. He cast out demons. He fed thousands of people that were hungry. Uh, he just did miracle after miracle after miracle. And you ask the question, why? Did he do miracles because he was concerned about people's hunger pangs? Did he do miracles because he was concerned about people being sick? He did miracles because he wanted people to believe that he was God. That he was God. John chapter 5, verse 36, The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me. The very works, the miracles that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. John chapter 20, verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So John writes only seven miracles. By the way, just a little quiz. What was the first one in the book of John that we talked about a number of weeks ago? Miracle number one. Don't have to say it out loud. Guess it in your head and see if you get it right. Ah, turning water to wine. You got it right. And the second miracle. That was the nobleman, the rich man, that had a son who was sick. And Jesus healed him from a distance. And then the third one, you remember that story? That was when Jesus went to Jerusalem and he went to this pool, Bethesda. And uh, there was a bunch of sick people around it because they believed that an angel would come down periodically and stir up the waters. First one in the water got healed. And there was a dude there who had been sick 38 years, laying on a pallet 38 years, not moving, and Jesus healed him. He got up and walked. And then this is the fourth miracle, feeding 5,000, three more to come. So he only writes seven, uh, but there's a whole bunch more uh, that are there. Um, 
again, chapter 20, verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed uh, that are not written in this book. Uh, verse 31, but these have been written. John said, this is the reason I write these miracles, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have, may have life, that's eternal life, in his name. So Jesus did the thousands of miracles that he did so that people would believe that he was God, so that they would believe in him, they would trust in him, and they would live in heaven forever and ever and ever. That was the goal of Jesus. John 21, 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. I mean, he did hundreds of thousands of miracles, and if all of them were written in a book, you couldn't, I mean, there would be too many even to have the world hold them all. Number two, the problem was that people came to Jesus as a result of his miracles, not to hear truth, not to serve and follow him, but simply to have their problems fixed. <clears throat> so Jesus is concerned about forever, eternity, where they will live for eternity, in heaven or in hell. That's what he was all about so that people could have their sins forgiven, adopted into the family of God, be given the free gift of eternal life in heaven. That was what he did, what he did for. But they were thinking, now. And I don't care about tomorrow, next week, next month. I don't care about eternity. I just would like to have a full belly now. There was a big difference uh, between what they were interested in. John chapter 6, verse 1 again. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they followed him, not to hear truth, not to serve him. They followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. John 6, 15, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Number three, the same is true today. The gospel that the world wants is the prosperity gospel. <clears throat> so 2002 is when our ministry in Sierra Leone began, and it was right after the war was over. They had a long 10-year-plus civil war where hundreds, I mean thousands of people were killed and the country just turned into to just nothing, and the poverty. So we went there in 2002, and... Uh, we already had two churches that had been started by money we had sent that Saw had planted. And when we were there, there were four of us, uh, we planted two more churches. And it was really kind of a new experience for me, and it was a lot of fun. We went to this village, and there was no electricity, and everything was super poor. And so we rented a generator. We built a wood stage. We started the generator, played some loud music, put a light bulb above the stage, and, and hundreds and thousands of people gathered all around and, and saw Joseph preach the sermon. And then he says to me, you give the invitation and ask people to trust Jesus. I said, why me? He says, because if I do it, there'll be a few respond. If you do it, everybody will. And I was a bit puzzled. And I said, why is that? He says, because you're an American. And they truly believe that you're rich. And they want to be rich. And they truly believe that the reason you're rich as American is because you're a Christian. And so when you give the invitation, they will believe that if they become a Christian, they will become rich like you. 
I, I was, I, you know, I thought, oh, I guess. So I did, and, and it was, I mean, I didn't do like they did, where there was, you know, lots of emotion and yelling and persuading. I just said, hey, if you want to believe in Jesus and trust Him as your Savior, can I come right up front here and a, uh, one of these pastors will pray with well, The whole crowd came up. I mean, there wasn't anybody left. Just everybody was around here. I'm thinking to myself, wow, Billy Graham has nothing on me. <laughs> uh, and so we're, we're mingling between all the people and praying with them. And I thought, I'm not sure this is legit. Um, it doesn't seem like this is what the gospel uh, is about. Uh, simply the good life. I remember, it wasn't that long ago, I was listening on the radio, I was driving, and this guy's giving a testimony, and he says, when I trusted Jesus, my hair grew back. I'm thinking, yeah, right. Didn't happen for me. And I see some of you missed out too. Uh, we like that kind of gospel, that if I trust Jesus, my hair will grow back. If I trust Jesus, I'll have no more problems in life and I'll have the good life because Jesus loves me and takes care of me and provides for me and, and, and fixes everything. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled. That is uh, kind of like this comfortable life thing. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth. And turn aside to myths. Turn aside to myths. Trust Jesus, your hair will grow back. Uh, that sounds like a myth to me. Number four, the prosperity gospel says that if Jesus really loves us, he will give us a wonderful life, which is a life of comfort and free from trials. How many times have you heard that statement? You know, if Jesus really loved me, he wouldn't have let my wife die. I mean, if God really is a God of love, why do we have wars all over the place? If God's a God of love, what's with this Ebola thing? If you want to read some interesting stuff, just Google in atheists, and then there'll have, be some sites for them that they have just for them, and read some of the stuff that they write there. You know, most of those guys believe in God. They just hate Him. They're bitter. They're angry. Because... They had a, a trial, a disappointment, a pain occur in their life, and they can't understand how a loving God would have allowed that to happen in their life. And see, the problem is they don't realize there's a big difference between now and eternity. I, I was nine months in my mother's womb. The reason I know is because she told me. I don't remember any of it. I have no memory whatsoever. I mean, why would you want to remember that? Uh, I was born in 1948, October 27th, and for nine months prior to that, I existed. I was alive. I was a person. But So, you ever hear anybody talk about their nine months in the womb? Oh, wow, it was great. I wish I still was there. It was, it was kind of warm and comfortable. Didn't have to work. Didn't worry about anything. Nobody does that. So, this life that we're now living is like a blink of an eye. It's like a vapor that's here for a minute and gone. All this life is designed for by God is to create our character like that of Jesus so that when we step into eternity, we're like Him and can enjoy Him and He us for all, and all of eternity. And so this life, God has, there's choices that we make. That's what love requires. 
and that we can choose to follow him, believe him, trust him, and have our sins forgiven, be given the gift of eternal life, or we can choose not to. Uh, eternity is dictated, determined by our faith in Christ now. And so everything he does, he does to draw him to himself and to develop our character. Life is never designed by God for comfort. That's heaven. Somewhere in our minds we got the idea that God owes us this comfortable problem-free life. And it isn't going to happen. Uh, it it's, was never intended to be. Number five, people who are attracted to the gospel of comfort and make a commitment of faith in regards to that usually fall away from their commitment, disillusioned when hard times come. So we went to uh, Sierra Leone in 2002 and had all these hundreds, thousands of people come forward to the invitation. And we went back about four months later, three, four, five months later, and I, we went back to this church again. And I expected there was going to be a huge church. Well, there was like a dozen people. I mean, it's just a little church starting out. It grew. Like, whoa, 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 where are all those people? Well, they, they didn't get a job. And their income didn't increase. Life was just as hard as it was before they became a Christian. Ah, it must not work. And so they bailed. Mark 4, 17. They have no firm root in themselves and are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately, they fall away. Six, when Jesus promised salvation, he was promising a life of total joy, free from all trials forever with him after, after this life is over. After this life is over, that's the promise. So I remember, took one of our kids, little kids, to the dentist and uh, they had to have a tooth filled. Oh my, they screamed. They were sure that we were killing them. I wasn't particularly concerned. Uh, why? Well, it's going to be 30 minutes and then we're going to be out of here. And their tooth will be fixed and it's like it didn't even happen. So we think, God doesn't love me. Uh, God doesn't really care uh, uh, how much pain you go through now. What He wants is you to be in heaven forever and to be like Him when you get there. And if we don't keep that focus, uh, then we're going to have a problem uh, dealing with life. 1 Corinthians 2.9, just as is written, things which eye has not seen ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. All that God has prepared for those who love him. That's in heaven for eternity. Isaiah 25, 8, He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. That's in eternity. Revelations 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. First things have passed away. First things, that's now. That's passed away. That's in the past. Now we're in eternity. Number seven, Jesus called people to follow him and serve him in this life and to embrace a life of suffering. You've got to be kidding me. You mean that when I trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and said, I believe, I believe you died for me, and he gives me the gift of eternal life. I'm going to live with him forever and ever and ever. I not only signed up for eternal life in heaven with him, but I also sort of signed up for a life of suffering. Uh, I pedaled my bicycle to Portland, Maine in uh, two months 
John Smith and I, and lost 45 pounds. And so, we're going to do it again. Y'all come, guaranteed, lose 45 pounds. You're going to say, I think maybe there's an easier way to lose 45 pounds. You ever think about it? If you really sell the gospel, communicate the truth of the Word of God, Jesus died for you, paid the penalty of your sins, you can have heaven, it's a free gift, you don't earn it, deserve it, but one of the things that's going to be true of your life is it isn't going to be easy. God loves you, and He loves you too much to leave you the way you are, and so there's going to be some problems and some trials and some setbacks and some disappointments and some pain come into your life so that you can grow and become like Him in character. Whoa, wait a minute. Maybe better I die and go to hell. Your choice. You choose. Matthew 7, 13, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad. You know what that means? That means it's easy, comfortable, that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. But the gate is small, the way is narrow. That means it's tough, it's difficult, that leads to life. There are few who find it. Few who find it. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anybody wishes to come after me, me, Jesus, follow me, he must deny himself, that is the desires for comfort, take up his cross. The cross was the ultimate instrument of pain. When the Romans invented that as a way of killing people, uh, criminals, they did it because they couldn't come up with anything that inflicted more pain at the point of death than the cross did. And so Jesus says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted, granted, given to you as a gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Number eight, life is hard. It's supposed to be hard. Those who know this don't fuss and whine. <clears throat> I saw a, bump, a, a, a poster and I, I thought, I've got to buy one of those because John Wayne is my favorite theologian. Uh, and it, it said, life is hard, but it's really hard if you're stupid. And uh, that's a good motto. Uh, and so life is hard. It's what it's supposed to be by God's design. And it gets easy when we get to heaven. First Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Do not be surprised. That's the way it's supposed to be. As though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Number nine, those who know life is supposed to be hard, pray for strength, joy, peace, wisdom, and opportunity to serve rather than for God to make things better. And so this is a personal conviction of mine. Uh, If you read my blog uh, in the last couple of weeks I've blogged about this, uh, somebody asked me the question, I don't ever see in the prayer letter that, where you ask for us to pray that God would heal you of your Parkinson's. And, my, and I blogged about this. And The reason I don't is because it could be that God's will for me is that I have Parkinson's. So I'm not going to pray that God take away uh, something that is His will for my life I'm not going to pray for an easy life. I'm not going to pray for a comfortable life. I'm not going to pray for God to fix anything. Because it very well could be His will for my life. But I, I, I can pray for strength to manage and to deal with anything that He brings into my life. 
God will always answer that prayer. I can pray for joy in spite of circumstances. God will always answer that prayer. I can pray for peace that passes all comprehension so I don't fret and worry about anything in the future. I can pray for wisdom so I know what to say and do in any situation that God would put me in. And I can pray for opportunity to do something that matters, that makes a huge difference in people's lives so that they'll live in heaven forever and ever and ever. Now, if I've had his strength, his joy, his peace, his wisdom, and I can serve and do things, open doors, opportunities to serve, what else really do you need? And so, personally... Uh, I'm not going to ask God to make life easy, comfortable, to take away anything that I don't like. Because I don't know what his will is. But I do know it's his will that I have strength and joy and peace and wisdom and that I do something with my life that matters, that makes a difference in other people's lives. So I can pray those things with total confidence. Now, I'm not saying you can't, and I'm not saying that I won't pray that for you if you ask me to, but my primary prayer for you all when I pray for you every week by name is that God would give you strength, that God would give you joy, that he would give you peace and wisdom, and that he would help you to serve and to do something with your life that's going to make a huge difference than a bunch of other people. Uh, God will answer those prayers. Revelations 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid of the future. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Uh, ten days was sort of a, figure, uh, a figurative kind of a statement. It actually was ten cycles. It ended up being ten rulers of Rome. But be faithful to death. I will give you the crown of life. Number ten, if Jesus is God and he fed 25,000 people creating food and bread out of nothing to prove to them he was. If Jesus is God, then we ought to be fully devoted to following and serving him. It's amazing how easily we can dance around commitment and be fully devoted to mediocrity. You know, the question is, do you believe Jesus is God, that he died for you? Then if you do, then follow him. Serve him. That's why I get up in the morning and say, you're Lord of my life. Your king, your master, I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you ask, no matter how difficult or how hard it is. In the Old Testament, Israel was serving every god under the sun. It was sort of like, oh, look at those guys. They got more money than us. Let's worship that god. Oh, wow, look at these guys. They all drive a new car. Let's worship that god. And so they had this contest, Elijah, the prophets of Baal. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. If Jesus is God, if he died for you, then follow him, serve him. Number 11, we can follow and serve Jesus well with great endurance and joy if we keep our eyes on the finish line. In other words, what's our faith about? Is it about the easy life? Is it about God fixing everything, making life comfortable? Or is it about... Uh, getting to heaven and living with him forever and ever and ever. And between now and then, growing as much as possible in character and serving and reaching as many people as is possible. We kind of have to figure out what this is about. Uh, heaven is heaven, and this life is not. It's hard, it's tough, that's the way it's supposed to be. But God grants us the strength to be able to deal with it, to manage it, and to bear much fruit as we pursue him. Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, that's the stuff, 
in our life and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy set before him. What was that? It was the knowledge that I'm going to die on the cross and experience the greatest pain possible. God's going to reject me, pour out his wrath and anger on me. But the result is thousands of people will be in heaven forever because of what I do on the cross. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Number 12, those that have a strong faith in Jesus and great hope in heaven will be very attractive to a hurting world because of their incomprehensible joy. So you can be happy because you got a raise, or you can be happy because you're going to heaven. You can be happy because you got a new car, or you can be happy because you're going to heaven. Now, if you're happy because of circumstances, it's going to go up and down, up and down, up and down. But if you're happy and full of joy because of where you're headed forever and ever and ever, your joy is going to stay right up here. And it'll be incomprehensible to people, but it'll attract them. Uh, and you'll have a reason uh, to share with them for your joy. So let's uh, finish the way we started. And uh, you, again, uh, it's your choice. I'll, I'll read them, uh, these commitments. And you can say it out loud as yours, uh, in your mind, in your heart, uh, as yours. Or you can say, I think I'll do that every morning. Uh, the first one, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Second one, I present myself to you as a holy and living sacrifice. Third one, I'm committed to doing your will, no matter how difficult or how hard it might be. Fourth one, please give me your strength to serve you well. And then the fifth one, I'm looking forward to heaven very much. Uh, I, you know, you could do those on your own every morning and it'd make a huge difference uh, in your life. And it would start scoring things up in your thinking, understanding what life is about and what he's about, where the source of joy is. And, uh, and then when you pray, don't ask God to fix your life. He'll do that when you get to heaven. I'm going to get a new body, and it'll never be sick, never be tired, and I think I'm going to be able to fly faster than Superman. I'm not sure how that's going to happen, but it's going to be cool, and I'm going to see him. I, I mean, it's going to be incomprehensibly wonderful. I'm going there, and it's getting closer every day, so I'm not going to fuss about anything in this life. Not going to complain and whine because it isn't a good life, because it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be a time in which I grow to become like Him in character, and it won't be that long until I step into glory. And so I'm going to pray and ask Him for opportunities to serve Him well in this life, the strength to do it, joy in spite of trials, peace, uh, where I don't fret about the future, and uh, just open door after open door after open door that I can invest my life for eternity. And you do that, uh, and life is an adventure, and you grow close to Him. But if you get all fussing about this life, uh, I mean, you're, you just, you're not attractive to people, and you don't enjoy life, and someday you'll be surprised when you step into heaven and think, whoa, huh, 
Focus on heaven. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We love you. Thank you that we have this awesome hope of eternal life in heaven because of what you did for us, the gift that you've given us. But Lord, as we live this life, uh, the promise that you've given us is that we will have trials and, and trouble and pain and disappointment. And it's because you love us. You love us too much to leave us the way we are. You want us to grow to become like you in character. And it's trials that do that. But you've granted us the strength and the joy and the peace in spite of those difficulties so that we can live above them. We can live with power and victory. We can grow. And the main thing, Lord, is we can serve. We can do things for you that impact and influence people to come to you, uh, to, to believe in you. I want to get to heaven, Lord. I want more than anything to enter into heaven and see hundreds and thousands of people who are there because I prayed and because I preached and because I served. Lord, that's what I want more than anything. And I, I, I just say I will, I'm willing to pay any price you ask me to pay for that to be true. And I pray that we would say that uh, to you, that I will, we will serve you, follow you, so that we can do your will and do your work and affect, uh, impact people. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.